Hi, we're the Goo Goo Dolls. We're fortunate that our daughters have what they need to grow and learn. But that isn't the case for nearly 13 million kids in the U.S. that struggle with hunger. Childhood hunger is a heartbreaking reality that Feeding America is working to change. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste and provides it to families and children in need. You can help kids in need in your community by visiting feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Tour de Trump stands ready to take its place alongside the great classics of Europe. But unlike those European races, this event has no history. It's creating its own history as we speak. And the man who has put his name on the event is Donald Trump. I really look to the future. I always do, with investments, with deals, with events, with anything. And I think this is an event that can be tremendous in the future. And it can really very much rival the Tour de France. There have been races in America, but they've been primarily a mix of criteriums and crowd-pleasing events. The European races, mostly long, point-to-point -point road races, and time trials, the race of truth. This event, however, a European event. Well, it's very European-oriented, and usually I'm involved in the boxing and the championship fights and this and that, which is really a much higher exposure. But I think this is going to be every bit as good and, and certainly every bit as exciting. We look forward to it. Thank you, Brian, for the explanation, and Donald Trump for the race. We'll come back with a look at the prologue course. Don't go away. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. All right, let's get the uh, festivities underway, shall we? My name is Tim Hanlon, and hello... And welcome, you have found Good Seats Still Available, the curious little podcast that is devoted to all things about what used to be in professional sports. Yes, we love to uh, obsess about uh, teams no longer with us, uh, defunct or otherwise. You can consider me, by the way, the doctor of defunct. It's uh, one of my many nicknames. Uh, and uh, things, uh, teams that are previously domiciled, for sure. Uh, leagues no longer with us. So, yeah. But also events and, and sports uh, spectacles, shall we say, that uh, similarly came and went. Uh, we've expanded our purview to include such things. And this week, as you could tell by our little intro there, uh, we're going to mix it up with uh, something uh, uh, uniquely uh, crazy, uh, maybe uh, just perfect for the times in which we find ourselves. Uh, and that is cycling, and in particular, this little thing called the Tour de Trump. Yeah, Tour de Trump, Donald Trump, right in the 80s, right? We uh, we remember him uh, as more benign, if you could even think of that, uh, as somebody who was, uh, you know, taking the uh, New York City real estate uh, world by storm, uh, certainly uh, trying to transform his name into a uh, product and services brand. You had the Trump airline, uh, you had the uh, various Trump hotels and uh, casinos, especially in Atlantic City. This is the uh, this is the sort of high time, I guess, in uh, Mr. Trump's life that uh, preceded uh, the first of uh, a whole number of financial difficulties, including a, a major bankruptcy uh, for said Atlantic City properties and then some. But we're still now talking uh, around the late 80s uh, when uh, he was still pretty much uh, kind of at a zenith, I guess, in terms of uh, his uh, uh, ego and uh, his branding and his prowess and uh, his uh, shall we say, self-confidence, uh, enough to lend his name, how charitably, uh, to a, uh, a very compelling idea, that is, a world-class Tour de France-like 
stage race in the United States for cycling. Uh, Why not call it the Tour de Trump? Well, okay. Um, But as we'll find out in our conversation this week, a very interesting one with our guest, Peter Nye, he basically the uh, uh, the kind of the the poet laureate, if you will, of cycling history in the United States uh, and the author of the second edition version of, uh, I, I would argue, probably the most seminal and comprehensive history of cycling in the U.S. called Hearts of Lions. We're going to get into uh, the genesis of uh, not only this tour uh, and its ambitions uh, and its naming, uh, but uh, also a little bit of pretext to it, right? The uh, the history of cycling is is very long and very colorful uh, in this country and, and a bunch of things that sort of lead up to uh, this uh, interesting moment in time with this Tour de Trump, later to be known, by the way, of course, as the Tour de Pont uh, in the 90s. And we'll get into the reasons why for that too. You can probably guess. I kind of hinted at it. Uh, bankruptcy has something to do with it. The uh, the the idea of sports and bicycling were very intertwined, especially at the uh, turn of the 19th century and the earliest part of the 20th century. Frankly, until the 1930s, uh, cycling was a major, if not the most major, competitive sport professionally in this country. Uh, this is back at a time when. Madison Square Garden was regularly used for uh, cycling events, uh, races. Uh, a number of uh, racetracks, horse racetracks were used uh, for not only uh, cycling races, but endurance competitions. Uh, where six-day marathon-like uh, competitions were uh, uh, not only commonplace, but uh, heavily betted upon uh, and big-time cash prizes for the winners. Uh, where, as you'll also hear in our conversation with Peter in a few moments, uh, some of the more uh, traditional, shall we say, sports in this country actually leverage the popularity of bicycling to help uh, promote these other sports. And by those other sports, I'm talking about baseball, actually, at the time, uh, and soccer and fledgling some fledgling uh, pro football uh, games and such. Uh, so this is very interesting and the juxtaposition, I guess, of of what was in the earlier part of uh of the modern history of the United States, uh, cycling was uh, the panic, if you will, uh, and uh, quite the exciting thing. Clearly, it uh, it changed and morphed over the decades after that. But in the 70s and early 80s, you had a, a number of different entities, as we'll get into specifically with Peter, uh, that were trying to kind of bring road racing and competition uh, back and professionally oriented. Sure, amateur was, was around. Certainly, the Olympics certainly helped... Uh, uh, goose up some interest and stuff. But um, this is uh, sort of where we leave you at the doorstep of 1989. That clip that you heard from NBC Sports uh, was uh, the young and brash and, uh, you know, uh, perhaps hallucinating uh, in some way, shape or form, Donald Trump uh, talking about just how great this event was going to be. Well, you know, uh, like a lot of things, it all came to a crashing halt, uh, you know, about seven or eight years later, uh, after a name change or two and some, uh, but this is a fascinating story, not just about the guy named Donald Trump, uh, and not just sort of the history of cycling, but the various characters that are involved in this story that, uh, the more you dig into it, the more, more just insane and, and uh, hard to believe it is. And we'll get into it, but, uh, I'll give you two names just to kind of wet the whistle. John Tesh is part of this discussion and this story. Uh, and uh, even more curiously, former CBS Sports uh, basketball, college basketball analyst Billy Packer is a central part of the story, too. Yeah, I, I, trust me, 
all this comes together in our conversation with Peter Nye. He, the author of Hearts of Lions, uh, which is a fascinating read. I, I learned a whole bunch about cycling where I thought, you know, I wouldn't really necessarily care all that much, but I actually do because the history is very long and very curious and very uh, surprising. Uh, but it's certainly a tremendous subtext and background to uh, this event that we're going to focus on a conversation this week uh, around this Tour de Trump, uh, later on known as the Tour de Pont. Stay tuned. Fun, interesting, and uh, unexpectedly so. I, uh, I uh, suggest you stick around for that. And before we get there, we want to uh, say hello to one of our great sponsors, one of our longest lasting, and that is 503 Sports, the king of throwbacks they consider themselves, and you should too. 503 Sports, and the website, of course, is 503-sports.com. Don't forget that dash. 503-sports.com. And uh, there, our pal Dustin Alameda and his uh, merry uh, band of women and men have uh, just a whole gigantic array of fantastic uh, collection of jerseys and caps and T-shirts. There's even a mini helmet uh, a collection there, all kinds of great stuff for teams from leagues and other sort of uh, long forgotten situations, defunct, previously domiciled, relocated, all those kinds of things. Uh, and it's just a, a cavalcade of, of great stuff, including perhaps what they're most uh, famous for are their uh, lovingly created and handcrafted 503 sports branded, authentic, recreated jerseys. And uh, again, for for various basketball teams and baseball teams and, and football and hockey jerseys, uh, these are one of a kind uh, and uniquely crafted items from the uh, the great minds at 503 Sports. And uh, and this week, uh, we'll call out actually uh, what is this month's team of the month, uh, as they like to do and highlight on the site at, at 503-sports.com. And that's the Tampa Bay Bandits. Yeah, I was watching, uh, I was doing a little comfort uh, comfort video streaming like a lot of people have been doing in our crazy pandemic times with a few extra hours on my hands the opportunity to actually you know delve into some of the movies and the and the television that I was uh uh somehow a blissfully unaware or or not uh, ne never actually got a chance to see back in the day and one of those actually was Smokey and the Bandit uh, a fun movie I I wouldn't call it Oscar caliber but it's a hell of it's a hoot as uh, as most of you know and the name Bandit, of course, became the inspiration or was sort of borrowed very heavily from the co-owner of said team, the Tampa Bay Bandits, along with John Bassett, of one Burt Reynolds. Uh, they're, uh, you know, sadly uh, recently departed Burt Reynolds. Uh, but the Tampa Bay Bandits, yes, that's where the name came from, uh, were one of the uh, strongest and uh, most uh, well-known and well-regarded franchises in uh, all of the USFL. Great stories there. We would have loved to have had Bert on this show. Uh, unfortunately, we will never get that chance, but uh, so many things to explore about a, uh, an amazingly interesting and uh, arguably very successful to the extent it was allowed to be successful. Hint, hint, wink, wink, very, uh, uh, very much uh, <laughs> related to the topic we're going to get to in the rest of our conversation this week. But I digress. The Tampa Bay Bandits are lovingly remembered uh, with caps and shirts and all kinds of jerseys and even a helmet in there at 503 Sports. Uh, check them out at 503-sports.com. And yes, don't forget the promo code, and that is SEATS. The promo code is SEATS, S-E-A-T-S, and uh, that's 10%. You will get off, right off the top, uh, from all of your purchases 
uh, whether it's bandits stuff or anything else at 503 sports again 503-sports.com promo code seats thanks dustin and thank you team there uh, at 503 sports we appreciate your uh, sponsorship of the show and uh, we of course appreciate you giving them a try uh, and hopefully making a purchase supporting the show we appreciate that and we also sincerely thank you for listening on to a fascinating discussion about this thing called the tour de trump as we get into it with uh, with peter nye here's our chat from just last week please as always enjoy From my sort of uh, scratch understanding of the history of cycling, which is far less comprehensive than yours for sure, um, I think it's it's really sort of unknown to a lot of people just how important and significant the sport of cycling, quote unquote, and maybe you can help us define it too, was sure. sort of in, in that period of time, let's say the early 1900s, maybe even a little earlier than that, because I, I think it's lost on a lot of people that uh, this, by by many accounts, was... <laughs> bigger than just about any sport, perhaps save baseball uh, out there in the United States and or worldwide, I think. And I think it was uh, maybe you can give us a little bit of background and sort of subtext for maybe what we'll ultimately get to maybe more trivially later on here. Sure. Well, the general broad background is that when bicycles came into being beginning um, late 1870s, early 1880s, it started out with uh, the high-wheel bicycle, which looks awkward to us today. It's, uh, you had the oversized front wheel with a seat on top, which sat a rider at about shoulder height to, uh, to the rider on the road. Those, those, they looked awkward, but we have to bear in mind that in the 1880s, However awkward the high-wheel bicycles look to us today, they represented that the very first time in history that if someone wanted to go somewhere, say, to visit uh, a friend or a relative on the other side of town, it was the first time in history that you didn't have to hitch or saddle a horse. And then around 1918, well, and one of the early heroes came from New Jersey. His name was Arthur Zimmerman, and he came from Camden, New Jersey. And... Um, Around 1890, we had the modern safety bicycle with both wheels the same size on a diamond frame, um, and it was uh, a chain-driven bicycle, and it came equipped with um, cushy pneumatic tires in contrast to the high-wheel bicycle, which had hard rubber tires, hard rubber like we have today on uh, grocery cart wheels, for example. So by around 1890, when the safety bicycles became available commercially, at first they came from uh, Coventry, England, but then American manufacturers like um, Colonel Albert Pope with his Columbia Bicycle Company, which is a brand still in existence today, started manufacturing these uh, safety bicycles. Um, The whole dynamic changed. And uh, within a... Within a couple of years, by 1892, uh, the United States joined France, England, Belgium, Italy, and France in creating an international cycling organization that decide, that continues today. It's the Union Cycliste Internationale, based today in Switzerland. But in 1892, uh, governing bodies from these different countries – 
um, established international rules for bicycle racing. And uh, they awarded, the organization awarded the first world championships to the United States, which took place in 1893. These are the world championships that continue today. And um, the, we have to understand that, um, that the safety bicycle, with both wheels the same size, it was a chain drive with the pneumatic tires, created an explosion from the Atlantic to the Pacific in the United States. It was the first national craze before, say, the hula hoop or Rubik's Cube took over as national crazes. The other countries, Australia, England, uh, France, um, really got involved with, with cycling. And um, bicycles created the first consumer demand for affordable individual transportation. Names today, like Chevrolet is a really big automobile name, but it was, you know, the name comes from Louis Chevrolet, who was a bicycle racer, for example, and then he made cars. And um, in 1890, there were about 12 bicycle manufacturers in the United States. By 1900, according to the U.S. Census data, there were 312 bicycle manufacturers. These included uh, the, the only, and then after 1900, um, these bicycle manufacturers started to merge and uh, they shifted into making automobiles. So by uh, the end of, say, 1909, you had uh, 146, there were 200 brands that had shifted from bicycles to automobiles. Um, and they were made in 146 cities in 26 states. So you can see that there was this massive shift that took place. Bicycle racing was a very popular sport from coast to coast in the late 1890s, but it peaked and then um, the uh, and then diminished because a lot of fads just run a course. Uh, it's typical for a fad to run approximately seven years. Well, that, that's interesting because it, it also it sounds to me like the sport part of this was happening in parallel, frankly, with the just sort of the general accessibility and or dynamic of, uh, you know, people powered uh, mobility, right? Uh, so right. it just like, like anything that's new or fad or, or you know, uh, that, that becomes just a passion, I guess, for, for folks, you know, yes. sport sort of creeps into it, right? Competitiveness in some way, shape or form. So it almost sounds like it's happening sort of dually, sort of simultaneously, uh, not sort of like one thing is establishing bicycling and then then people sort of figuring out that a sporting element can be added to it. That's right, Tim. And we also have to bear in mind that we've, we've always been in love with speed and bicycles were the fastest things on wheels. There was a, a fellow named Charles Murphy who um, had worked out on a stationary trainer, which is still used today, where you, your bicycle sits on top of rollers and uh, in his case, he had wooden rollers. We have uh, uh, more sophisticated technical equipment today. But in, in, uh, in the 1880, late 1880s, when he was 16 years old, he pedaled a mile on a stationary trainer at a time um, that was two minutes faster than the existing um, mile that the national champion had pedaled. And... 
So from age 16, this, this guy, Charles Murphy of Brooklyn, New York, realized, wow, without air resistance, I, can, I could keep up with a locomotive. And um, in 1899, in June 1899, on a, a safety bicycle, he pedaled behind uh, a locomotive. He pedaled behind a railroad coach car that was pulled by a locomotive on uh, Long Island, New York, and he he broke a minute for the mile uh, pacing on a board track laid between the rails. And um, he is, he, uh, his example in June 1899, where he pedaled a mile in 59 and two-fifths seconds, so that's 60, 60 miles an hour, that um, proved the theory that without air resistance, uh, a person on a bicycle could really keep up with a locomotive. That was really far thinking, sort of like Jules Verne at the time. But um, and then soon after that, after after Murphy's ride, you had an explosion in um, affordable consumer transportation, and the members of the bicycle industry started to uh, shift over. You know, uh, among them would be like the Pierce Arrow. You you had a bicycle first. Pierce was making bicycles in Buffalo, New York, and then. Um, they were making bicycles and automobiles. And um, anyway, it, it, so the whole transportation business began with bicycles first. And they created, bicycles created affordable consumer demand that never had previously existed. Well, explain to me then how, how the sport, quote unquote, sort of comes about. And obviously the United States is kind of the focus here, but I obviously know that internationally in this case is, is also going to be a huge right. uh, and maybe even the driver, but but you're mentioning a few sort of different facets, and I'm wondering if if these uh, early sort of uh, 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 the coalescence, I guess, around what the quote unquote sport of cycling is. Uh, it, I'm I'm certain there are a couple of different thoughts and approaches, right? You're mentioning one is sort of I guess speed, and I'm I'm guessing another is sort of perhaps endurance. Uh, perhaps others are sort of more. Uh, you mentioned or hinted at a velodrome or, or course right. based. Uh, give us a sense, you know, in thumbnail fashion, of course, because we can go much deeper. How how does the quote unquote sport, if you will, of cycling, or maybe sports plural of cycling, evolve over these decades that that follow? Well, all around the United States in the late late 19th century, almost every uh, every town and all cities had horse tracks. The horse tracks. Were, were where bicycle racing began in the 1880s. And, um, and then in the 1890s, when you had the uh, introduction of the chain drive bicycle with both wheels the same size on a diamond frame, then riders could ride in packs. And um, anyway, so the emphasis was on racing. And also this was a generation that, w- that went out of the home for um, they went to vaudeville shows. They went to listen to live singers singing, torch singers, for example. They went to see a live theater. This was a generation that was accustomed to going out and seeing live entertainment. This was long before people were accustomed to constant reconstituted dots on a screen, for example. It was before movies. It was before radio and um, or before television. 
So you had uh, people were accustomed, that is the general public, people in cities especially, and also in the countryside, were accustomed to seeing live entertainment. Bicycles, bicycle racing were part of that live entertainment. And uh, at first, in the mid-1890s, when bicycles, uh, modern bicycles as we know them, were still pretty new, uh, bicycle racing on tracks was really popular. It was a big money sport. Madison Square Garden put on a lot of events. Madison Square Garden was the Circus Maximus of American sports in New York. Um, but also, um, bicycle racing was extremely popular in all cities. And uh, it, the sport itself came, you know, peaked from coast to coast on uh, either board, outdoor board tracks with curved uh, banked turns to so that the riders could uh, go faster and faster leaning over and on the turns and then down the straights the sport peaked in the late 1890s but then consolidated in mostly in the northeast cities and the mid-atlantic especially between new york and city and boston and uh newark on down to atlanta and then over to chicago and uh, it was a big sport through the 20s, through the 19 roaring 20s. And then the sport, it was a big money sport. Uh, for example, um, when in, in 1909, 1910, Ty Cobb was winning American League batting championships, playing baseball for the Detroit Tigers. And his salary was $4,500, and he wanted to hold out. He didn't go to spring training. He wanted to hold out to get $10,000, and he finally got it. But bicycle racers like Frank Kramer, who was a, a heavy hitter bicycle racer, very popular at the Newark Velodrome in Newark, New Jersey. It was on Orange Avenue and Munn Avenue and in the Valesburg section of Newark. It was already making about $20,000 a year since 1900 uh, in prize money. He also had a contract riding racing bicycles for Pierce, the bicycle manufacturing company in Buffalo that was also making cars called the Pierce Arrow. Um, anyway, so the, the money was in uh, bike racing. It, that's, that's where the big money was. Where, where's the source of this money sort of uh, uh, coming from? Is it, is it betting? Is it uh, wagering uh, legally or probably certainly illegally? Uh, who's putting up the prize money for that? How is it becoming, I don't know, a, a, a viable enough sport where there is that much significant prize money behind it? Oh, that's a good question, Tim. Thank you for asking that. It was basically um, ticket purchases. Twenty uh, In the 1890s, early, you know, you had people paying um, 25 cents, 50 cents, uh, went up to a dollar just to go through the turnstile. And then... More, if you paid more money, you got a better seat. All these tracks had grandstands, so you had uh, more expensive seats in the grandstands, which were in the middle of the uh, final straight. Then you had the you know cheap seats around, cheap seats wrapping the oval around. So it was basically prize money was based on money from the gate, and then um, that was that's for the outdoor tracks. And the indoor tracks were used, uh, like in Madison Square Garden, for example. And um, 
in in New York City and and other urban areas. They had uh, city stadiums. Um, anyway, the um, those indoor races say between November through March, indoor six day bicycle races. They, they were they were the original uh, extreme sport. Yeah, like ma- marathon oriented, right? Like uh, how long? And it's like like the uh, twenty four hours of Daytona, if you want to stretch a, a auto racing analogy, but over six days, and it's endurance more than it is speed. Or that's right. Races. And and uh, beginning in eighteen ninety eight, the, they had started out in eighteen ninety one. You know, go as you please, pedal as long as you can for six days, six nights, uh, one hundred forty two hours. You know, nonstop. In 1898, at Madison Square Garden, they introduced a two-rider team where uh, each you had two-rider teams, so that each rider is on a one rider is on the track at one time or another. He alternates like take team wrestling. Uh, one rider is on the on the track racing, and his his uh, his partner is uh, eating, taking care of business, and uh, taking care of equipment, and so on. So, but they would alternate. Um, two rider teams, um, 1914, for example, um, two rider team of Alf Goulette and Alfred Grenda and Madison Square Garden pedaled 2,759 miles. That would take you from San Francisco to New York City. Uh, the Tour de France bicycle race was created uh, based on a six day format. Uh, originally, when the Tour de France was created in 1903, they raced six days. But in between each day, two or three days, um, they would rest up. So they raced six six days <laughs> uh, over a three-week period. In any event, um, and then for the in case in the case of the Tour de France, they um, it was created as um, a gimmick to sell newspapers for a newspaper called Lotto, L-A-U-T-O, which continues today. Um, in any event, um, the six-day bicycle race was very popular format from the turn of the century into the 1930s here in the United States in um, cities like New York, Boston, Chicago, Los Angeles, San Francisco, St. Louis, Indianapolis, um, and Atlanta. And um, but in the in the U.S., though, it, it sounds like it was more uh, venue based. Whereas this Tour de France idea sounds like, or maybe may, I'm assuming, was more uh, country, if you will, based or or in the in the in the streets kind of based. Is that is that well, yeah, yes, you're abs- you're absolutely right. In the case of the Tour de France, where they where they took the six day format, and uh, the riders rode horrendous distances all on the road. We had no road racing in the United States. Our racing was strictly limited to the track. Track racing favored, uh, you know, the everybody in the audience could see the the race unfold from start to finish. That was a premium of uh, track racing. And so it made track racing was a very big spectator sport. Um, in the Tour de France, they they rode uh, <laughs> they rode 
stages that required riders to get up and hit the road at about two o'clock in the morning. And then they would finish about seven or eight or nine or 10 PM. And they would ride uh, on each in the early days, uh, they would ride something like 350 miles. That was the day's race. And, um, but the Tour de France was created as a, um, think of this, the newspaper was going to go out of business and the sports writers on the staff were going to be pitched into the street. So the editor decided, well, we're going to hold a bicycle race. This is 1903. We're going to hold a bicycle race that will be so long it might kill the riders, but everybody, but we'll write features on all these riders. We will publicize the race just, just the way we publicize preview, uh, we preview races with publicity in advance. And um, it turned into a huge circulation gimmick. It was very successful. The newspaper was published uh, on light yellow newsprint. And um, after several editions, after about a decade of the Tour de France, um, the publisher realized, gee, you know, I can, uh, I can give the race leader uh, a jersey with the same yellow color as our newspaper print, and the audience, people standing on the sides of the road, will be able to spot the leader based on totally lapsed time. So that's how the yellow jersey came about in the Tour de France. I see. Now that's fascinating. So, uh, but but that what you're describing though is maybe almost a, a parallel development. I guess the United States is sort of uh, maybe more business rooted, frankly, because you're mentioning the spectator sport. People are paying for the privilege. Uh, right. Money purses, whereas this uh, fledgling tour idea, literally and figuratively touring the countryside and in, in, in on the road, right, is more of a promotional gimmickry kind of thing where I don't want to say money is sort of in the background, but it's certainly not in the foreground. Oh, yeah. It's uh, it, even to this day. The, um, well, it, the Tour de France is strictly a uh, monetary affair. That was, that was the uniqueness of the Tour de France. It was a commercial adventure from start to finish. And um, it's all about money and it was all about newspapers. And now radio and TV. Here in the United States, uh, bicycle racing was always about money. And um, with prize money, Madison Square Garden put up big purses uh, beginning in 1920. Um, for example, the, um, the six-day bicycle races in Madison Square Garden, there would be one in November and one in March. Uh, beginning in 1920, the purses were $50,000 each. That was what the racers were competing for uh, with uh, eight to $10,000 to the winning team, for example. Uh, by contrast, um, bear in mind that in 1919, the uh, Major League Baseball started got involved in a scandal with um, – the Chicago White Sox throwing the World Series of 1919 to the to the Cincinnati Redlegs because the the rider the baseball players weren't really making all that much money. Uh, Ten thousand dollars, I think, was the top salary of of the best paid uh, Chicago White Sox pitcher. The money wasn't in Major League Baseball; 
or at least the money wasn't in playing Major League Baseball. The money, uh, top money, was in uh, was in bicycle racing. I mean, you know, that's again, that's fascinating. And obviously, as the as the years went on in the United States, right, a lot of other shall we say professional sports exploits, baseball certainly prime among them. But then, not there soon after in the twenties, thirties, and forties, you had football sort of gaining some some traction. Certainly, basketball and, and hockey was small but fledgling and, and all that kind of right. stuff. I'm sure that's part yeah. of the professional distraction here. But let me let's so let's let's circle around sort of this notion then of okay, if if this Tour de France, right, and for whatever reasons becomes quite the panic, shall we say, in in France and in Europe and, and becomes sort of a, a viable commercial enterprise and, and that of culture too, right? Beyond sort of just the fact that it's a race and and uh and a cause celeb in the, in the countryside and selling newspapers. Thinking of, okay, and this is only born from the things we've learned in this silly little show in the last couple of years. Where, where is the similar, shall we say, entrepreneurialism for bicycling here in the United States to do something similar along the lines of a, of a Tour de France and or what was happening to these sort of pro- uh, matches, shall we say, here in the states that 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 frankly went on the wane circa the twenties and thirties. Like, why did sort of that sort of fall out of the spotlight as a as a quote unquote sport in this country, given how successful and uh, and and uh, magnetic it was uh, up till this point? Oh, that's a really good question. It's in two. I'll answer you in two parts. The first part is that um, bicycle racing in the United States flourished. Uh, through the 1920s. And uh, then you had the stock market crash in October 1929. You had the onset of the Great Depression. A lot of people were, the Great Depression um, collapsed banks by the hundreds. People were, uh, and then companies went out of business. It 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 was a serious matter. And that's that started the death knell of professional bicycle racing in the United States, which was strictly on the track. And then you go through some decades, and in France, Tour de France flourished, and then uh, newspapers in Italy and Spain created their own grand tours, as that three-week format is called. So you had the Tour de France in France. You had uh, a, a counterpart in Spain and a counterpart in Italy. And I and I would in, I would insert at this point that every year those Grand Tours were held in advance when the events were being planned. The or, race organizers would go to the cities in the in and talk to the Chamber of Commerce and ask, how much money are you willing to pay for our race to start in your city, for our race to end in your city? So it was a commercial enterprise. Anyway, that business model was seen as uh, a really big deal. And in the 1970s here in the United States, we did not have a grand tour like the Tour de France or in the counterparts in Spain and Italy. And uh, uh, an entrepreneur, Mo Siegel, of the uh, Celestial Seasonings uh, Herbal Tea Company, 
started a uh, a weekend race. So he had racing on Saturday and Sunday, and then he's and then beginning in in 1976, 1977, and then he added a couple days, you know, 1978, 1979. And um, it was called the Red Zinger Classic. And then that race was, uh, went for several years. And then was, um, Mo Siegel didn't want to continue with it anymore. And the Coors Brewery created their, their they picked up the torch and um, made it professional. And uh, basically it was out of Boulder, Colorado. With and then would branch out like the Tour de France into other cities and surrounding states. And uh, Michael Eisner uh, expanded the uh, Coors Classic, as the stage race was known, into a you know two two weekends and the week in between. So you had uh, twelve days, uh, and it would go through Colorado and surrounding states. And one year it even went out to San Francisco. That was 1988. And then uh, the Coors Brewery decided that they would give up their sponsorship of the Coors Classic as, as that stage race was known. And that was the American equivalent of the Tour de France. Shorter, but international. Drew uh, really in strong fields. Some Tour de France winners like Bernardino of France came and competed in the Coors Classic. But by 1988... Coors pulled the plug after the 1988 edition, and um, there was a vacancy. And so before you go further, that's so that's really interesting. So in essence, you're describing between the uh, Red Zinger Classic and the Coors, I guess, International Bicycle Classic. These were, uh, I guess, well, I guess two questions. Number one, these seem to be, I wouldn't call them equivalents of a Tour de France, but maybe the beginnings of what the a United States could do in a similar fashion right. to that of, of, and maybe, you know, and I guess behind that is probably, I don't know, in, in some dreamlike state, uh, people's thinking that this could be, I don't know, part of an international circuit, so to speak, if you, if you really. Well, it, it was, it was on the international calendar. Yes. Okay. But, but then the second thing, I guess this is sort of made the more poignant question, because this is obviously leading to the doorstep of, of the uh, entry that we're going to get into. What, right. took, what took so long, shall we say, to get, uh, this, I want to say rehabilitated, but the idea of cycling, road racing, uh, competitively in one way, shape, or form, whether it's indoors, outdoors, on the, on the, you know, on the roads or whatever in the United States, why was it, I, I don't know, out of the limelight or the spotlight, I guess, for such a long period of time until this somewhat modern period that you've just described? Right. Well, one problem was that, um, American bicycle racing, uh, after the Depression, you had, we had World War II, and uh, we had, during World War II, we had 14 million uh, people. The population was about half of what it is today in the early 1940s, and we had 14 million people in uniform during, say, 1940 and 1945. And um, so when the war ended, um, all that was left of American bicycle racing was amateur, and it was strictly uh, the. We didn't have we didn't have any. We were not manufacturing any bicycle or road racing bicycles. It was uh, predominant. So um, racing was 
very provincial uh, in the 40s, 50s, and into the 60s. Um, there was a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of passion, but no real structure. It was uh, grassroots, basically, uh, governed by the Amateur Bicycle League of America, devoted to amateur racing. And that some, some clubs were, put, were hosting road races. And that's, it's, it was out of that fervor and enthusiasm that the Red Zinger Classic was created. The problem that road races posed and the reason, Tim, that uh, road races were slow to gain adaptation in the United States was, was jurisdictional because to hold a road race, you have to go through uh, different counties, and sometimes you'd cross state boundaries. And all of those are jurisdictions that the race organizers had to coordinate with. And that takes uh, red tape. And um, some, uh, so the, the answer basically was that a lot of race directors in the late 1940s, the 50s, and the 1960s didn't want to hassle with different county and state jurisdictions uh, for road races. It was easier to hold a local race like in a downtown where you just closed off like five, six streets from traffic during uh, a race of 25 miles to 50 miles. 50 miles in the 1950s and 60s was considered a, a road race, even though like in Somerville, New Jersey, for example, uh, you had uh, a race around the downtown circuit, that was, which was 50 miles. And uh, that, was, that became a classic. It was held in 1940 on Memorial Day and uh, still is being held today. Um, but the format uh, was basically local. And uh, it wasn't until Mo Siegel decided, let's have a bigger road race. Let's, uh, and he had, you know, he was a successful businessman and he had a lot of contacts um, so that the Celestial Seasonings uh, Red Zinger race was, uh, you know, radiated out of uh, out of Boulder into adjacent states, like we like we mentioned. But by 1988, leading into I think what you want to talk about uh, after the Coors Classic finished in July 1988, um, Coors announced they were uh, not going to sponsor the International Coors Classic, so there was a vacuum. And uh, a group of people who had been working with uh, the logistics, handling the logistics of the Coors Classic, um, that is taking care of the roads and uh, setting up the start line, setting up the finish line. Um, they wanted to uh, hold a race of their own. And uh, this would be the infrastructure. And uh, a person involved with them, um, thought, well, okay, well, let's have the tour of New Jersey. And we're going to start modestly like Mose Siegel did with uh, Red Zinger. Um, and uh, we'll call it the tour of New Jersey, and we can you know, get corporate help and uh, keep it going year after year and make it longer, more and more days, more distances, and um, we'll, we'll nurture it to become like the Tour de France. And uh, one particular person had an in through a friend of a friend he could he could he had a he leveraged a meeting with Donald Trump who then 
88 was a celebrity real estate agent. Well, let's, let's, okay. So let's talk about that for a second. So uh, first of all, why New Jersey? And then um, let me, uh, let me also introduce a name that uh, somehow has stuck out in my research that uh, I'm sure you're aware of that seems to probably be completely from left field in all this, a guy named Billy Packer, who most people know from college basketball commentary back in the day, CBS in in, in particular. So put, put those pieces together. Why New Jersey? Okay, and I'm from the great state of New Jersey, so just keep that in mind. Uh, not that it's not a great state uh, for various reasons, but it has its issues. Uh, and then two, where does Billy Packer come into all this? And then we'll get to Donald Trump because that's even even more absurd. Well, Billy Packer was, uh, you know, was a fan of bicycle racing. And Billy Packer was, uh, had a contact with, uh, he, he knew the people putting on the Coors Classic, including... Michael Plant, who was, uh, he was, Michael Plant was very good with uh, making plans, you know, laying out streets and courses and bringing in, uh, having, having a meeting with the chambers of commerce of different cities and negotiating uh, the rights to, for cities um, to pay up and uh, in a, in a combination of uh, cash and services, that is providing police escorts, uh, having the Chamber of Commerce pitch in and give X number of uh, hotel rooms, for example, to accommodate uh, riders and teams. And um, anyway, so really- It's bringing the circus to your town, so to speak, right? And why not be part of the financial benefits of such? That's exactly right. So Billy worked with uh, Michael Plant on that. And uh, Billy was a spokesperson, and he had a contact to uh, to meet Donald Trump for a five minute meeting in, his, in Donald Trump's uh, Midtown Manhattan office. And I'm guessing, I'm sorry, before you go further, I'm guessing this is because so maybe some of the New Jersey interest or, or, or why that might be somewhat logical versus say somewhere else in the country is, uh, I guess, why Packer was reaching out to Trump in the first place, which I guess was the then fledgling uh, door opening of, of uh, legal uh, gambling uh, in Atlantic City. At that point, I guess the, only, the second really major place in the country where gambling was uh, going to be legally allowed uh, outside of Las Vegas. Right. Yeah. I mean, it seems like a natural, I guess, sponsorship environment, right? Where, uh, right. But I, to me, the New Jersey thing is just so fascinating. But so how does, okay, so Packer, I guess sees Trump as because he's so flamboyant and you know, trying to make a name for himself in Atlantic city just seems like a natural, I don't know, brand at least to sort of be involved in some way, shape or form. But, th- but oh, that's exactly. not what happens, right? It, be, it becomes much more than that. Right. Um, well, it, it really had, it, it really escalated exponentially. And um, so Billy Packer had a five minute meeting with Donald Trump and he walked into Billy Packer, walked into Trump's office, you know, wanting to pitch the tour to New Jersey. And, you know, Billy Packer pitched that, um, you know, that there's the tour de France. And at this time, this is 1988. Um, Greg Lamont had won the tour de France in 1986, which you know, he was he was the first American ever. He was the first non-European ever to win this the Tour de France, which dates back to 1903, as we mentioned earlier. 
Um, and a lot of people learned about the Tour de France from Greg LeMond winning. So, and then two years later, Andy Hempstead uh, won the the Tour the Tour of Italy, the Giro d'Italia, which is the Italian counterpart. And um, so, American cycling was on an upward march with LeMond winning the Tour de France in '86, and then uh, in the s- spring of 1988, Andy Hempstead was the first American to win the Tour of Italy, the Giro d'Italia. So um, Billy Packer um, realized, wow, America is now on the upswing, but now we've got, you know, the collapse of the course classic, but we have the, uh, basically the infrastructure to uh, hold this circus from day to day, going from city to city. um, And we can't let it just sit. And so Billy Packer had an interview a five minute pitch to Donald Trump. And, um, you know, Donald Trump at this point, he was a celebrity. He was actually, from our perspective today, he was at the peak of his power as he was going to open up uh, more casinos in Atlantic City. Um, this was before his bankruptcies and before his multiple marriages. Um, but it's, it's 1988 and Billy Packer was pitching and he realized, you know, Donald Trump has the Trump yacht, which was almost a football field long. He has Trump Plaza and Casino and Billy Packer is, you know, pitching in this meeting and he's thinking, I'm not going to, we're not going to call it the Tour de New Jersey. Billy Packer, fast on his feet, thought, we can call it the Tour de Trump. And, uh, he suggested that to the Donald as Donald Trump was then known. And um, Trump was speechless for a moment. And he looked out the window of his, uh, you know, he's got a nice view of Manhattan from his office uh, up on the 15th floor or so. Uh, And he looked through the window, Trump looked through the window and he thought, you know, it just might work. And he allowed his name to be put on it on, on the race and Billy Packer and Michael Plant um, had their team. And uh, with Trump's name, um, a lot of corporations put up money to have their name identified with Donald Trump. And that started the 1989 Tour de Trump. All right. Uh, another person I got to throw out the name of, because I also saw this person's name in, in the research, too. Uh, maybe backhandedly or, or maybe a minor a piece or maybe major and we just haven't talked about him is John Tesh. Oh yeah. Right. So, uh, and for those, you know, for you youngins out there, John Tesh, I mean, I remember John Tesh is a, a cub news reporter on channel two in New York, uh, back in the day, but he's obviously done lots of stuff round, round ball rock, I guess is, uh, sort of synonymous with the, uh, the NBA on, on NBC and now has been rehabbed as the, uh, as the college basketball theme on Fox sports now. And uh, you right. know, all kinds of things that, Tesh has done since then is his music career, of course, but, but at the time, right, he was, this is in the late eighties, I guess he was, and I remember this vividly too, back in the eighties, he was kind of like the, I wouldn't call it the minor, I guess the minor sports guy on the scene for CBS sports and in particular what they called CBS sports spectacular, right? Which was their version of ABC's wide world of sports, sort of the anthologies. And I'm guessing the tour de France was on his radar and or one of his more recent uh, assignments. And I'm guessing that he, too, felt some enthusiasm. But I guess I'm trying to figure out 
how he became involved, so to speak, aside from being a cheerleader from the media side. Well, yeah, uh, John John Tesh was, uh, you know, he's also a music composer. He had nice, hard-driving kind of music that he created. But he was a, he was a correspondent who covered the Tour de France when Greg LeMond won. And he also had help with a, uh, a very capable uh, Kent Gordis was um, bilingual. He, well, Kent Gordis uh, was a cameraman for CBS at the time. And John Tesh was the person in front of the camera covering stages of the Tour de France for CBS. Brief coverage, but tantalizing in, uh, 80, 80, in the mid-80s. And uh, with with the rising talent of Greg LeMond and Ken Gordis, Ken Gordis is a Yale graduate, and he's fluent in French. Uh, French is actually his first language, and English is his second. Although when you talk to Ken Gordis, you wouldn't think that English was his second language. He also speaks Spanish, and uh, he's fluent in Spanish. So he was doing translations for uh, John Tesh. It was. It was really a, a nice knitting of different talents. And uh, so they worked very well together. Covering the, and so John Tesh was covering for CBS. And then, uh, so it, all of that ginned up enthusiasm for uh, a big stage race here in the United States. All right. So now maybe you can help separate for me the idea of big tour stage kind of racing and that of the the tour specifically being named after Trump because you know I, I it's obvious we could, you know we can get derailed into sort of the the current sort of iteration of of Trump which is a whole sort of hornet's nest of 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 nonsense that that this just just is No, not. let's just concentrate yeah. on this but, golden but the, moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At the time though, right? Uh he wasn't necessarily the most loved character either. He was he was flamboyant. Uh, he was very representative, I guess, of what you would sort of sort of see as sort of that sort of the yuppie kind of phenomenon, sort of the urban uh upwardly mobile, uh, you know, and and brash and, and not afraid to sort of be out there in the press and, and, and flaunting, if you will, lifestyles of the rich, you know, all that stuff. Right. So um, I, I guess the question in there is it, it, it seems like it's clearly time for, you know, a big time race along these lines, maybe taking that cores and celestial seasonings uh, back, uh, uh, you know, uh, efforts uh, the years prior to the next level. But right. I guess the question I sort of have is, and I'm also trying to square this with my memory, how much of a help or a hindrance was the Trump name in, in it, trying to help achieve that uh, going, you know, in this, in 89? Well, at the time, the, his name, to his credit, was Golden. And it helped, uh, his name helped bring in uh, major corporate sponsors like Nike and Oldsmobile and um, BMW and... Um, Hewlett Packard, Gatorade, so which you know, and all these other corporations jumped on to have their name associated with this event, and um, Crest Toothpaste, and uh, Virginia Wines, um, Power Bar, and uh, anyway, a lot of manufacturers got involved uh, with the 1989 Tour de Trump, and it was a successful race. Why not the tour of the USA or tour of New England? Why not just drop the name Trump? The problem is you wouldn't be here doing an interview right now. That's the problem. And 
we really have we've gone over it and i would have almost preferred if we could have done without but and somehow now it's been almost received beautifully it's just been so successful and so nice and the coverage has been so fantastic a lot of the races came actually because of the name so the name has been a plus and uh, again i wanted to be successful because that's important for the name let's look ahead 10 years from now where do you feel the tour de trump will be i think that with a little maturity with a little time with a little effort and with NBC's help, we'll make this the equivalent of the Tour de France. I can't say we're going to make it more, although in theory, you can also say that we have many more people, so you in theory could make it more. But I would like to make this the equivalent of the Tour de France. It started in Albany, New York, and went through a number of states and finished in front of uh, Trump's casino in Atlantic City. All right, so describe to me Trump's role in all of this, right? It, it's clear that he certainly basks uh, in the in the name recognition, and uh, he was he was strictly a name, and he showed up for all the photo opportunities, right? But he was not involved in the creation or the, the running of it. But but he was also though no. uh, flamboyantly and bombastically uh, to, uh, to to nobody's surprise, right? Already, even before the race was kind of uh, get, getting going, he was already sort of uh, uh, visually uh, visualizing this to be the equivalent of the Tour de France and then maybe then some, right? Grandiosely. Well, um, Billy Packer and um, John Tesh and, um, I mean, and Mike Plant had a plan that this, this could develop. But I, I, I'm just, it's very difficult to tell what was on Donald Trump's mind. He was, Donald Trump supplied his name and that enabled the event to be held in 1989 and 1990. Um, and then he had to withdraw because he was going bankrupt and um, well, the first of six bankruptcies and uh, the race was then taken over by the DuPont corporation and continued for many years. All right. Well, describe to me those, those first two years then uh, you, so the first sort of course starting in Albany and going all the way down to Atlantic city. And, and you know, you think about it on the East coast, if you I grew up there, right. That's, that's a, I guess at least psychically, uh, that is that's a pretty long distance, right? Uh, it's it's there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of mileage in between those two uh, those two right. sort of zones, right? Um, but uh, describe success to me. I know Sports Illustrated would call it a success. How about television? How how about the crowds? I mean, what defines success for those first two years? Because uh, it wasn't, you know, nationally covered, I don't think. It wasn't sort of, it didn't, did it take the, sort of the, uh, the sporting world by storm? I'm not so sure. But I, what I don't know is sort of how well received it was, not only in the, in the, in the media, but also on uh, television and or in the communities uh, that it went through. Was it as a, a big a boom as, uh, as people were sort of uh, planning? Was it uh, uh, more so, less so than the, than the original hype? I'm just curious as to sort of those first two years as to, how successful it truly was. Yeah, well, I'm glad you asked that because it, it achieved enormous success, uh, enormous media success. NBC was a co-owner. NBC Sports was a co-owner along with um, Billy Packer's Jefferson Pilot production. Ah, interesting. Okay, good. And, and the Trump Plaza. So, um, and the so, rest- so there was media built in effectively because of that co-ownership. Right, and because uh, ESPN broadcast evening uh, evening results, and uh, this is between May five and May fourteen, 
Um, and then on the weekends, uh, NBC did uh, a lot of broadcasting with feature programs. And um, I covered I covered the first one for the Denver Post, 89, and then 1990, I wrote it, I covered it for the Washington Post. So, and I write about it in my new second edition of Hearts of Lions because it was quite a, um, you could tell that some, there was something going on in American cycling and Donald Trump for that moment was part of it. And his name turned out to be an important asset for raising money. And um, so anyway, it started, just so your readers know, it started in Albany, New York with a, a time trial and then went from Albany down through New York City to, to Lehigh Valley, Pennsylvania. And then it went <clears throat> to Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. And then it went south all the way to Front Royal, Virginia. And then it uh, had, there was a stage from Charlottesville, Virginia to Richmond. And then, uh, and then Arlington, Virginia, which is just across the Potomac River from Washington, D.C. And then there was a stage in Baltimore, and then it finished in Atlantic City, finishing in front of Trump Tower. Wow, a Trump Hotel. Um, so, and there were, there were as, I, as I write in Hearts of Lions, the media coverage was far more extensive than um, for this one event than all of the cycling coverage in the, in the uh, 19... Um, in the Los Angeles Olympics of 1984. Yeah, my, my, my sense is that the, uh, the, the publicity and or maybe the distractions that came along with that publicity were far outweighed by the quality of the cycling, the integrity of the racing, uh, the, the, uh, the manner, uh, the, the, the participation, because it was neatly fit into the sort of international cycling uh, realm. It, it seemed like it was... Uh, very successful as a sporting endeavor, uh, yes, it was. despite and, the, and the I, other distractions. Right, and and I, I write in Hearts of Lions that the the nineteen eighty nine Tour de Trump drew, drew an audience. This is uh, people watching the race, and like uh, in between cities, you had a lot of uh, you had schools were let out in order to watch the race pass by, for example. But anyway. The audience, it drew a race, uh, the Tour de Trump, 1989, drew an audience of more than a million people. And that doubled all of the cycling events of the LA Olympics combined. And it generated unprecedented uh, local coverage in newspapers in the Northeast and the Middle Atlantic. And um, that was, for me as a reporter covering this, you know, 1989 for the Denver Post and 1990 for the Washington Post. It was really neat to see uh, local sports reporters come out and cover this, uh, cover a cycling event. I mean, in other words, um, you had you had baseball reporters and football. You know, reporters who normally cover base baseball and football now were covering cycling. Yeah, yeah, it's sort of that spectacle thing going for you. Not unlike, say, a World Cup, for example, in soccer, which until you know until around that time was still. You know, it's uh, it's something new. And different. how about the fans? Uh, do, what do you remember about the fans? I mean, curiosity, uh, cycling enthusiasts uh, coming out of the woodwork, uh, international, domestic, and how about the uh, the riders themselves? Uh, were were they pleasantly surprised? Were they 
uh, you know, do they hold their noses because it wasn't sort of European? What, what, were, uh, the, what were the well, riots and the, and the fans like? Okay, well, I'm glad you asked that because uh, the writers came from all over. There, were, there was a, a big contingent, for example, of uh, Russians. And, uh, so, and uh, there were professional teams and there were a lot of uh, national teams uh, like the United States Cycling Federation had uh, three, three teams. And these are, well, four teams. Canada had a national team. Um, there, there were teams from Holland and Czechoslovakia and um, the West Germany, Sweden, the Mexican uh, national team. These, yeah, these, so, the, so the tour took it seriously that, that they should they should make this part of their uh, their their right. stuff. And, and, and professional teams like uh, uh, especially a lot of uh, Dutch professional teams and including here in the United States, the 7-Eleven team. And uh, Coors Light had a team in 1989, and uh, they were in it. Anyway, the Europeans told me that um, they found that the the roads were very similar to France uh, in terms of undulations and twisting, and they were secondary roads for the most part out in the countryside. And uh, a lot of the the riders told me that – they really liked it. They, they like competing in the United States. The United States, you know, we're a rich nation. The, the motel accommodations were uh, a notch two, two or three times up better grade than what uh, the European riders were accustomed to. The motel rooms were, were larger. They had uh, better towels, the, the European riders told me. So they, it was, and it was very competitive. And uh, and there was a, a young guy who came from Texas and was a triathlete in his first big big road race named Lance Armstrong. I think I've heard of him. But but the the um, so now we get a little granular. This was though a this was structured as a pro am event, right? Not sort of a yes. top tier, not not a pro only event, right? right? Yeah, yeah, this, okay, this is 1989 and 1990, and it was just when that line was blurring between professional and amateur. But did that, uh, but I, I, I know we're kind of now fast forwarding a little bit, but, but as the, the tour wound down in the, in the years ahead, and we'll get to that in a minute, um, was it a, I mean, I guess in the initial like year or two or so, I mean, the Trump name, the celebrity, the the newness, the 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 fertile territory of the United States, all that sort of stuff alone would draw people. And the fact that it was neatly sort of sandwiched into the schedule, but it sounds to me though that the I, I'm wondering if that also helped uh, prevent it from maybe going and staying around longer than it did, because it wasn't. Well, I don't know. I, now I'm getting into areas where I don't know about cycling, but did the pro amness hamper it? in the years to come uh, uh, versus it maybe becoming more fully professional and maybe more prize more money oriented and all that kind of stuff. Or am I just barking up the wrong tree here? No, it was, um, it was a push pull effect with um, the amateur teams because these are, these aren't just uh, loosely organized amateur teams. They were the national teams, the teams that the uh, governing bodies from the different countries like Canada and um, Sweden, Mexico, Holland, 
uh, Czechoslovakia. These, these were the teams that those countries were preparing for the Olympics and world championships. And, um, and also they were functioning as a sort of a farm system. These would be young riders, eight, you know, late teens around age 20. And uh, they would all the overwhelming majority of these uh, riders would then join professional teams. So, um, and also you had uh, an emphasis on the internationalness of this event and um, it creates a lot of color, especially once in a while an amateur um, would break away and uh, have the ride of his life and win. And the pros didn't like that. So um, it kept the, the mix, kept uh, the pros honest. To, uh, always- yeah, that's interesting. And it also might give frankly, the fans, the casual fans, a little bit uh, more uh, uh, relatability, perhaps, uh, in right. some shape or form, right? To- and every, everybody loves it when a dark horse wins, you know, the underdog. All right. Well, so explain to me the years that, that came about. So clearly one of the, the issues was, was Trump uh, ending his sponsorship after the second year. It, it though didn't seem to be related, if you will, to uh, the success of the race, right? Because I think Packer kind of looked at the next year's race, 1990, as, as sort of expanding the geography a bit, moving it down a little bit into uh, trans, uh, uh, you know, uh, transporting across a couple of different states, uh, Maryland and Delaware and New right. Jersey. Yes. Um, so, I mean, I, is there anything more to Trump's uh, ending of the sponsorship than his, uh, shall we say, his financial distractions? Or was there anything else that maybe sort of was in the mix as well? Or is it just simply that? I think or lack of interest on his part or whatever. No, he was, he was, um, he went into bankruptcy and, uh, that could, that could do it. <laughs> right. I mean, um, $3.5 billion bankruptcy with the, uh, Taj Mahal Atlantic city. Um, but, um, the race was successful and, uh, Billy Packer and, um, uh, Mike plant, uh, attracted uh, the DuPont Corporation to take over, and it became the Tour DuPont in 1992. Why them and how? Do you know anything about that part of it? Well, give me that again, please. Why, uh, why DuPont and uh, anything around how that sort of came about to sort of, quote, unquote, save the day? Well, it was, it was a smooth transition. Uh, Billy Packer and, uh, and Mike Plant, uh, were aware of Trump's financial trouble, and um, they they had the race because now it, it was uh, a continuum. Um, you had uh, the 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 Coors Classic came after the Red Zinger, and then the and then after the Coors Classic, we had the Tour de Trump. So it was that stage race mostly in the. Northeast and Mid-Atlantic um, was an established entity, and Billy Packer and Mike Plant then just made a nice transition. They had uh, corporate sponsorship from uh, the DuPont Corporation. It became the Tour DuPont. It continued for several years. And uh, other sponsors got involved. Amgen uh, then moved it over to the West Coast. 
and it became the tour of Amgen um, for for many more years until just recently. So that was how we had a national tour in the United States. So, so what? Why? How, as given that, then why the denouement and the collapse? I guess of the Tour de Pond in in ninety six. It would seem like, and I remember this too pretty vividly. That yeah, it was quite an event, especially up and down the East Coast, and and it was almost kind of a a little uh, parlor game to sort of figure out what states and and what cities uh, the the course that year was going to go through. Uh, was it simply a the major title sponsor just uh, uh, abandoning for whatever its own reasons? Uh, why did it not sort of continue past DuPont? Was it simply because they couldn't find another sponsor to take their place? Um, why do you think it kind of, given that sort oh. of that 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 reconnection with with the sport in this country, why was it? Why do you think it went away? Because I know Packer and Trump were kind of they kind of. I, I think they got into a legal issue near the end, right? Because I guess there was sort of a ownership squabble about where the profits were going to go and all that kind of stuff. So I, I don't I think, think it ended cordial. I think that squabble took place after um, with the uh, Tour de Pont. Trump really didn't play a big, big role in, uh, in, in the dissolution. Uh, and there was infighting, but I don't remember much of what the infighting was. But that took place after Trump was not on the scene. Sure, that, that, that understandable and, and frankly not surprising. But why in '96 then? So I, I I don't know what the reasons for Dupont sort of pulling back. But you know, companies come and go, and they you know naming rights of things, uh, company right. directions change, and all that kind of stuff. Um, may, maybe do you do you under, have any knowledge as to sort of why they sort of gave up that title, and then perhaps maybe why somebody didn't immediately sort of come thereafter like they were able to do after Trump left. Yeah, I do remember reading about the, um, the internists and squabbling, the internal squabbling, but, um, but that was in the nineties, mid nineties when, uh, and, but I I don't really, I can't shed any light on that. All right. Well, give me then, maybe this is a great way to sort of round it up though, uh, is, for a white hot moment, right, and a number of moments, a number of years, right, this was, uh, you could make the argument, the uh, best uh, top-tier uh, attention-grabbing uh, tour-like uh, endeavor in the, top, the upper echelon of, of cycling uh, in was. this country. I, I just, I, why did it kind of just sort of go away and, and frankly – especially given how still culturally significant and then some the Tour de France is and, and, and yeah, I'm sure I, of course the, 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 the doping issues with, with the sport generally and all that stuff, but, but it still begs the question, where did it go? Where did this great idea and this momentum go? And then why hasn't it either stuck around or come back maybe with a vengeance given all the cable television we've got available to us, all the corporate money and stuff. It would seem to me like, the spectacle of a tour like this could be very successful still today if it were rethought. Well, the potential is always there. Uh, it's, it's a matter of leadership and um, organization. The, the logistics for handling a t- uh, any kind of stage race are uh, very complex because of the jurisdictions between cities and counties and states and also um, corporate sponsorship. Um, 
it takes a, a great deal of leadership. I guess I'm trying to sort of circle around uh, why it sort of went away. I, the, the idea of trying to, I would say rival, but certainly coming up with an American version of, of substance that could be tour worthy and maybe give something like a tour de France, uh, you know, uh, a run for its proverbial money. And I guess maybe right. embedded in there is legacy. What is the legacy of this tour? We've clearly proven that there was an appetite for it, clearly proven that it could be pulled off. Yes. Um, why do you think we don't have something like this similarly uh, still maybe now today, or, or perhaps could we in the future? Well, Amgen, uh, the pharmaceutical company, had the, uh, took over the reins, and uh, it was the Amgen Tour of California, which was held for many years until this year. And it's been suspended. Um, so to answer your question, it, it did continue. That is, stage racing in the United States did continue. Uh, but but clearly not at the same level, perhaps, to the sort of average fan. Is that fair to say? I mean, well, when it was a, the, the Amgen Tour of California got, a, you know, it was, in, it was on the international calendar and, uh, and, and branched out uh, the Early tours like uh, Red Zinger and Course Classic, the Tour de Trump, and then the Tour de Dupont were were just for men. And the Amgen Tour of California also had um, a women's tour as well as the men's. Um, but um, so it did continue. Is uh, is part of it though too? I and and now you could maybe sort of enlighten me. I I get the sense that much if not all of the major money in the sport is still largely domiciled in Europe. Is that a fair assessment? I was at the Tour de France being sort of prime among it, but does that maybe have some, if that's correct, does that have maybe some uh, contribution to, I don't know, I guess, I guess sort of that idea I mentioned earlier, right? The idea of this sort of proverbial world tour. And yeah, I know, you know, there are, but you know, you think of that could be, if it were more interconnected and more um, coordinated, shall we say, and, and look at the PGA, look at, uh, you know, look at tennis, right? Those are, uh, but, you know, in the United States, it still feels a bit uh, provincially uh, understood maybe um, to its detriment, or again, maybe if I'm just generically uh, misrepresenting. Well, um, to answer your question, um, I think what you're talking about is, is a matter of, tradition, sport. And in Europe, they've long had uh, spring classics, the uh, early, early season races. Uh, many of them go back to as far as 1891, where they've been held every year except for war. Um, and and those, are, those are called spring classics. And uh, several of them are called several of the spring classics. And these are in Germany, France, Spain, uh, Italy. Um, some of them are called monuments where they've been held every year. And so they're, they're on the calendar. And then there are the grand tours with the Tour de France, and then which we all know about, and then the Giro d'Italia, the Tour of Italy, and then the Vuelta d'Espana, the Tour of Spain. And these are bedrock of the high-level professional sports. We 
we haven't here in the United States, we've not cultivated uh, spring classics and we've not really developed uh, monuments, monuments. The, the one, one here in America might be the tour of Somerville, which is a, a program of races that have been held since 1940. And uh, in California, that's the tour of Nevada. Uh, but we don't have the, here in the United States the scale of uh, institutional bike races that they have had in Europe. So you're right there. All right, I guess I get, looking back in the lens of history, I guess. Uh, so I mean, I, I, it, I guess it's a valid question, but you know, I, I'm sure some people would look at the uh, the Trump name in the beginnings of this as as uh, a distracting asterisk. Um, but I guess in your mind, if you, if you, so you put it all together and you put it sort of in the grand scheme of, of cycling history in this country, which obviously, you know, you're ex- exceedingly well qualified to, uh, to opine on, you think, you think his involvement and the tour to Trump, given only two years, given the, all the distractions and stuff, you think it was helpful to the sport? You think it, it, it didn't help the sport ultimately? You think it was just kind of a, uh, a neutral event, uh, any sort of particular lasting effect of it, or is it just a matter of other things maybe not coming together that didn't sort of allow it to sort of, you know, continue and flourish? I guess Billy Packer thought maybe he could take this all across the country if things went right. That's right. And he's, he's got, he's got the mind uh, and, and the vision to uh, do something like that. Um, But um, basically I, I think that, the, the Tour de Trump, just focusing on that, you know, because it drew an audience of a million based on uh, the number of people who stood beside the road uh, over the nine days this event took place, and the uh, television coverage with NBC and ESPN and the Northeast newspapers in the, in the Northeast and the mid-Atlantic, the crowds I saw that turned out when I was covering it as a newspaper reporter. Um, it, was, it was a great moment, but uh, in, in order for, um, but, it, but it wasn't, uh, it was good for that period, but it, um, it doesn't, it hasn't, American cycling hasn't had the, hasn't created the legs or the legacy that uh, exists in Europe. I mean, the Tour de France is, is synonymous with generations. Um, and in Italy, it's the Giro d'Italia. And in Spain, it's the Volta Espana. But we don't have that in the United States. All right, profoundly interesting stuff. Uh, we, uh, we never know what we're going to unearth uh, when we uh, circle around a topic, but uh, this one uh, surprised us uh, and continues to do so. We would uh, love to potentially go deeper in this conversation and hear some first-person accounts of this. Uh, Billy Packer, uh, if you're listening or anybody's got a connection to Billy, we'd love to talk to him. How about John Tesh? We'd love to talk to him about not only this, but uh, also some of his uh, CBS Sports exploits. I know, for example, he called a couple of major indoor soccer league games back in the day and some other, shall we call them smaller or uh, more challenger-oriented sports beyond the Tour de France and and, uh, and this Tour de Trump slash Tour de Pont thing. Uh, we're also very interested in this thing that we didn't talk about uh, called the National Cycle League. Yeah, there was actually a team-based 
uh, competition, uh, mostly domiciled in the United States, also a little bit in Canada and actually a bit of Europe, too, uh, that uh, was uh, a thing during the 1990s in particular uh, that I remember from uh, the ESPN2 early days when that network launched as they were looking for all kinds of sports to throw up there. And 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 this thing was called the NCL, the National Cycle League. Uh, and uh, we, we look forward to hopefully getting an episode uh, done on that one, too. So cycling, lots of stuff uh, yet to potentially uh, explore. But uh, this story, courtesy of uh, our new pal, Peter Nye, thank you for uh, enlightening us to this. The book is called Hearts of Lions, The History of American Bicycle Racing. It is published by our pals at the University of Nebraska Press. Uh, if you, uh, I think you'll find it interesting, even if you don't fancy yourself a, a history buff or even mildly interested in the sport of cycling. Because as we alluded to before, you have to remember in the early 1900s, all the way to like 1930 or so, even prior to that too, frankly, uh, the sport of cycling, competitive cycling on a lot of different fronts was uh, arguably and not so arguably the most popular sport in the country. Uh, more so than baseball for a time, more so than uh, boxing for a time, more so than a lot of things both, uh, uh, you know, then as well as now. Uh, and I think that's uh, part of the fascinating history. And that's why we like to go back and, and learn. And, and obviously, it set the table for uh, the various competitions that came, including uh, the craziness that we discussed this week and hopefully a little bit further down the road. You can find a link to uh, Hearts of Lions, as well as uh, another book we uh, we recommend by Peter. It's more uh, uh, pictures and uh, and some descriptions versus, uh, uh, you know, more of a, a a slog of words. It's called the Six-Day Bicycle Races, America's Jazz Age Sport. Uh, and if you want to see how these uh, endurance races in the uh, in the early 1900s kind of looked and felt and, and just how uh, crazy it uh, uh, important and uh, well attended and, and well wagered uh, these uh, <laughs> these events were, uh, you could uh, you will enjoy this that book as well. Both of those books you'll find uh, linked conveniently from uh, our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up this episode uh, with Peter and I, and uh, you will find convenient links uh, to those books if you're uh, not uh, already finding a way to purchase them on your own. While you're there at goodseatsstillavailable.com, you'll find all of our 170-some-odd episodes thus far. More to come. Bookmark it if you'd like. Uh, and if uh, you want to tool around and download them from there or stream them from there or share them from there, go ahead. Uh, the easiest way, of course, though, is just to subscribe uh, to this little show. We're, we're easily found just about anywhere. It doesn't matter if it's Spotify or Apple or TuneIn or uh, whatever. We're available just about wherever you get podcasts. But just subscribe to us, for God's sakes, why don't you? And while you're there, if you have the opportunity and you can do it, why not rate and review the show? Give us a five-star rating if you like us. We'd appreciate that. Uh, and, of course, that helps other people like you or, you know, perhaps interested uh, in sports and sports culture and history uh, discover the show like you have uh, beyond just simple word of mouth. Also on the website, all of our social media feeds, you'll find those there. At Twitter, you'll find us at Good Seats Still. Follow us there, why don't you? How about on Instagram? You can follow us there. We're at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, you want to follow us on Facebook? You can do that. I don't know what the website uh, uh, extension is, but uh, just search up Good Seats Still Available on, on Facebook and bookmark that, and that's that's us there. Uh, you can send us email. Of course, you can do that. Uh, hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. That's the uh, easiest way. Uh, and if you want to get our email newsletter, well, let's be on the in, on the in, on, in the know, he says, or, or on the inside or some combination thereof. 
Uh, that's our little weekly uh, tip sheet, if you will, on what uh, each week's coming episode is going to be. You'll find a link there somewhere buried in the website. Just search it up and uh, give us your name and email. We'll send you uh, and get you onto the list uh, for that. Our appreciation, as always, to our pal, Jerry Payne. Jerry Payne, audio excellence. Say it loud. Say it proud. You know it. You love it. You can't live without it. And him. Thanks, Jer. We appreciate your help as always. Thank you, uh, everybody, for listening. And uh, let's leave you now, shall we, with a little... uh, How about some music from John Tesh? Why not? Uh, This is uh, a tune entitled Iron Man. And uh, it is uh, one of the many items of music that uh, one would have heard uh, on the NBC sports presentations of the Tour de Trump, uh, the Tour du Pont, and the uh, the Tour de France, actually. Uh, and as you know, John Tesh, a very uh, prolific uh, artist in the realm of music. And uh, here's a little uh, sampling as we uh, leave you with Iron Man. And uh, until next week, uh, take care, everybody. Appreciate you listening. Bye-bye.